Support for the Claim of Stories podcast and the following message comes from 99designs by Vistaprint. With a worldwide community of more than 150,000 talented freelance designers, 99designs by Vistaprint is the global creative platform that makes it easy for small businesses to work with creative experts and build their brand through custom, memorable design. Learn more at 99designs.com. So I went into Annenberg, which is the School for Communication, and um, you have to take a bunch of news writing classes and, okay. or just like just news stuff in general, right? One of the classes I had to take was news writing to fill my thing. But um, I sat in there and then at the beginning of the semester, um, you know, you go around the class and everyone asks you what you want to do. And like at that point, I was just like, I, I just want to work in music. So I said I wanted to work in the music industry. Like, and I had no clue what I wanted to do at that point. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so I said that. And then we go through the semester. At the end of the semester, this girl that's been in the class all uh all year comes up to me she's like hey like you want to work in the music industry right and i was like yeah i do and she goes well i um i'm finishing an internship at interscope records and they need people for the summer so if you want to do that like let me get your resume and and i'll give it to the to the people and i was like uh yeah absolutely (laughs) what are the chances (laughs) i mean listen like that's like i've had there's certain moments in life that i look back on where i'm just like i can't believe that that actually worked out the way it did but that that's definitely one of them where i just happen to say something off the cuff and then like you know six months later like someone's like hey do you want to do this and i'm like absolutely and then that turned into my career this is claim of stories a show about leading and emerging bipoc creatives and how they're able to claim their dream careers tell me where you want to go where you want to be i can help you claim a seat get you on your feet tell me where you want to go where you want I'm Bima, and on today's show, we talk to Ray Alba, an SVP of publicity in the music industry and a genuine fan of music, working with everyone from Soulja Boy to Kendrick Lamar. Raised in Palmdale, California, Ray promised himself that he would get out as soon as he could. As a child, music filled his house and became his solstice when he felt like an outsider of the family. Listening to the local hip-hop stations at the peak of West Coast hip-hop, Ray aspired to work in radio, and his blue-collar parents supported his dreams. The first person in his family to go to college, Ray attended USC. Although high school was a breeze, college was a rude awakening. There was a lot of partying and poor grades. He'd eventually get kicked out of USC, but not before letting his goal of wanting to work in the music industry be known. A classmate remembered this, and at the end of the semester, passed his resume along to the people at Interscope Records, and he's never looked back. Ray got his shot in the publicity department, where he was an assistant to Greg Miller, who was looking after the careers of Rich Boy, Soldier Boy, and the game. Ray built a reputation for being the hip-hop head around the office, working with Yellow Wolf on his second album, and then an up-and-comer named Kendrick Lamar, leading the publicity for the Grammy Award-winning Good Kid, Mad City album. In our conversation ahead, Ray shares a story about listening to Bruce Springsteen with his parents. I mean, the main artist was Bruce Springsteen. Like, that was my mom and dad's, like, favorite artist. According to my, to them, like, they took me to a Bruce Springsteen show when I was, like, a, a baby baby. And, like, that was the first concert that I had been to. But, like, specifically the Born in the USA album, I just remember that mm. one so vividly and listening to that, like, over and over. And, like, I would sit there in front of the record player and, like, just 
because it was on vinyl, right? And yeah. it was just like with my headphones on, with that thing folded open and reading like the liner notes and the lyrics and everything like that. Like that's the <laughs> one album that really stands out. And then my mom also loved Van Morrison, so there was a lot of Van mm-hmm. Morrison that was being played. And then um, my pops like put me on a bunch of like oldies, like you know, 50s, 60s, 70s music and like classic rock and things like that. Like my dad has a real like eclectic musical taste, which was cool. Man, where where did the like the reading of the liner notes come from? Like, because that's Honest not to God, like I have no idea. Like, that's just something that I did. Like, I I just was like into the music, I think, and then like mm-hmm. wanting to be in my own world and whatnot. That like I could just like dive into that and like you know soak in all the information and read the lyrics and memorize the songs and figure out who did what. Like it was yeah, it's just not different. Like a real little kid, and that was when we lived in Pacoima, and like I mm-hmm. moved out of Pacoima when. I was in the second grade. I don't know what age that is, but like that's when mm-hmm. we left. But like I remember doing it then. So I was like a super little kid doing that. Jeez. And and you don't remember like your dad, you don't remember seeing your dad doing these things. They were just stuff you picked up. You were just curious about music and you just gravitated towards it. Yeah. And then, I mean, you pick up a vinyl and it's like interesting. There's like a cool yeah. picture on the front and like there's like a bunch of words and information on there. Like I was just trying to soak it in. <laughs> I think it was also crazy when you think back on like, how we used to receive music, right? Like before it was all digital and you lost a lot of the stuff you used to get. You used to get like the like liner notes. Like I remember CDs and you get like lyrics in them. Like you get yeah. like a whole bunch of stuff in these in these records. So it was super interesting to kind of kind of hear how you gravitated towards it. And when you were listening, well, you were just like, was it just playing through regular speakers or were you like, because you had mentioned kind of like going into your own world. Were you listening through headphones? Always yeah. headphones. Yeah, always had headphones on. You had to have the big, like, three-quarter-inch thing sticking to the radio, right, to put yeah. the headphones into. Like, yeah, and it was just always, like, with headphones, so I could just sit there and absorb it all. Man. Um, and tell me about, like, your other interests outside of music when you were growing up. Because I think you you played a little bit of football, right? Yeah, but that was in high school. But I didn't do anything any of that growing up. Like, I wasn't in, like, no Pop Warner or nothing like that. I really didn't do sports when I was, like... A little little kid but then when I went to high school I picked up football for a year and I figured out that that wasn't for me but <laughs> I, w- I was into sports but not like playing them I would playing just watch them. watch stuff like crazy like with my mom's dad when he lived with us back then like I remember like the the first thing the first like actual sports memory I have is when the Bengals were playing the 49ers in the Super Bowl and I don't remember what year that was because I'm bad at that kind of thing <laughs> but like I just remember watching that and watching Icky Woods score and then like Jerry Rice doing his thing and all that stuff. Man, yeah, I I, I kind of align with you on that. I, I wasn't the the football player, but I definitely was a fan. You know, we got the we got the Saints in New Orleans for yeah. for good or for bad, but <laughs> it was bad back then. <laughs> we 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 had our year, um, couple years, couple close ones, but it is what it is. Um, right. So football wasn't your thing, and you know you had this interest in music on the side. Um, so were you like pretty academic? Like were you good in school? Like what was your thing? No, I was really good in school. Like that's that's what I figured out with my ticket out of wherever I was was going to be. Um, you know, I just I was in gate when I was like super young in elementary school, whatever that was worth. And then, yeah, went to high school and just found it easy and just did really well in it. Hmm. Were were you? I guess what what drove you to do that? Like, was it just like you you discovered you it came to you pretty easily, and so it just was like I need to do this to get out of wherever I'm at. I mean, that's interesting because, like, I don't, I, I couldn't tell you what drove me to do anything. I just sort of hmm. did what felt right. And then, like, what, like, I, I knew what I had to do. It's like you, you, you go to school and you're told you have to do well, right? So mm-hmm. that's what I did. And that's what I <laughs> wanted to do. You know what I mean? And then, like, I figured out early on that where I was at wasn't where I wanted to be. And without sort of, you know, 
getting higher education and getting out of the area that I was in, that, that was only going to happen by doing well in school. So I didn't, you didn't have a choice in the matter as far as I was concerned. Like, it's either you, you fail and then you go work at the Walmart or at the mall, or you do really well and then get to the next opportunity for yourself. Like, that's sort of how I laid it out. Yeah. And in, in your environment that you grew up in, you, you were in Palmdale, right? Yeah, we moved up to Palmdale when I was in the second grade. So I went to, you know, the rest of elementary school, high school out there. Yeah. And and it, was that a lot of what you saw? You saw like people just didn't leave and they would end up like, you know, graduating. They were working at Walmart. See, I kind of feel like I was part of the the great migration up there, kind of, because there was at the time, like when we first moved up there, there wasn't really like even a mall. Right. Like mm-hmm. it was just a bunch of track homes that people were moving into at the time, like Lockheed and Boeing had plants up there so like that's mm-hmm. what drove the industry but then like housing was mad cheap because the community was developing so everyone would just you know commute down to LA but there just wasn't opportunity up there like as far as I was concerned and then like I like early on I wanted to do radio that's what I had thought initially right uh, so like I was like yo there's no radio station out here like I grew up listening to like <laughs> 92.3 the beat and power 106 right so like right. The, I was like that's in LA man I gotta get down there I gotta figure out what that move is yeah and what was the the distance between Palmdale and LA from like you know if you drove it by car it's but depending on where you're going, but like it's like 70 miles outside the outside LA. Wow. So you're talking about a serious commute. So at your oh, it's no I mean, joke. Like when when would your when would be the first time you would have the opportunity to go maybe as like a teenager? I mean, we would kind of take trips down here every once in a while, right? And then like my my extended family lived in the San Fernando Valley, so we would go down to the San Fernando Valley all the time, right? But like mm-hmm. we would just do random things down here as a family. My dad loved to drive, so like he would drive us like all over the place, like through Angeles National Forest, like which would put you in like La Cunada and then come into LA and then head back up. Um, but yeah, we would always just be down here, and I would always like it was always like you know an arm's reach away. Yeah, and so I mean, I guess it's it's probably easy to see the allure, and especially you thinking you want to be in radio. You're like, in the back of your mind, you're just like, there's nothing here. It's a real city, right? I want to get to real. You know, I mean, the fact that you didn't even have a mall. <laughs> yeah, for a while. like it was crazy. Like literally, no mall, and then like that's popped up one day. They added water, and there it was. I'm like, oh okay, like that's cool. Finally. <laughs> Where did where would people hang out? Like I, I remember as a teenager, my spot would be the the local mall. Like how do you not have that? I mean, listen, like you just go over to the homie's house, like and just mm-hmm. hang out. Like that's what it was. You just kick it with people in their cribs, you know. Like whoever you were friends with in school, go over to their house and do whatever you do. Listen to music, play video games, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so I know another part of your story is that you know you grew up um, a mixed race kid, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you were one of, I mean, the first in your family, essentially, to go to college, right? Right, yep. Um, what was that like growing up for you as you were younger? Was it ever, like, was it ever a thing? Was it ever something that you were aware of? Like, you know, every day you're, you're aware of this? Or, or Oh, I was acutely know? aware of being mis- mixed race. Um, mm. Like, yeah, on, on both sides of the family, it was interesting because... Yeah, I was just made aware of it, like not even something that I was conscious of, but then like it would just be pointed out to me all the time. So it was just like literally at the front of my mind, like from as early as I can remember, man, like I would get, you know, razzed from the brown side of the family. And then Mm -hmm. like, you know, I would get people would make slick comments on the white side of the family, too. Like I have this one memory when I went up to go see my mom's side of the extended family and we were eating food or something like that. And like, I, we were using tortillas, right? Like, mm-hmm. and I grew up eating them joints like regularly. Yeah. And then so like, my uncle like looks at me and he's like, this is what like Hispanic people use as utensils. And like, I was like, that's the weirdest comment I've ever heard in my whole entire life. And that I'm like, bizarre. yeah, it was super bizarre. But like, it was like little things like that. Like nowadays you would call them microaggressions, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. sort of like 
how it was like in my face all the time. Yeah. And for you, were you left to deal with it yourself or did, you know, did your parents kind of, did they jump in or did they were just like, this is kind of what it is? Or like, how, how was that managed within the family? You know, I don't really know. Like, I didn't vocalize it, right, and how it really made me feel, which, you know, I guess is difficult as a kid because, like, it's like your family. So you think that that's just how things are sort of supposed to go. And mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. It wasn't really dealt with like that. Like, I didn't really deal with it until I got older and started getting into therapy and things like that. But, you know, when I was young, like, no. And then, you know, you have this desire to have this big extended family, especially on the Hispanic side of things, right? Like, you know, yeah. go over to my grandma's house because her birthday's on Christmas Eve. and like just have a tamale factory being made and like eat and the whole thing you know what i mean so there was just like it was just part of my existence growing up right i mean it's got to be kind of kind of you know a strange existence to kind of be dabbling into these two different worlds and you you know you're the only person that has i mean at this point you're the only person that has the first-hand experience of like what this is like um as you were younger how were how, how would you deal with that when you were younger is that where you kind of would you know, dive into your studies or dive into your music to kind of just escape a lot of the crazy stuff that was happening. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, like it, as an as an adult, I'm able to look back and see like what I did as a defense mechanism, right? Where uh -huh. like I was in these environments that were supposed to be safe, but they weren't overly safe for me. So it's like mm -hmm. the people that are supposed to love you are giving me a hard time about things. Like, what am I supposed to do for that? So then that's when I started putting up my defenses, right? And like I started yeah. just to like isolate and Oh, yeah, isolation's a hard term, but isolate to an extent and just like envelop myself into a full, you know, whatever I was into. So it was music. Like I would, you know, at that time I had my disc man. So I would just like be listening to stuff <laughs> on my disc man, like doing my homework in the backyard, like with my headphones on, like doing that whole thing. Like that's that's what I did because couldn't talk to anybody about anything. Like no one understood me. Yeah. And so at that age, you're, you know, 16, 17, 18, you know, you're a teenager. Um, what what are you listening to, right? Like, what's what's really resonating with you at the time as you 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 know you're coming of age? Man, at that at that time it was the whole East Coast West Coast stuff, right? So mm -hmm. like I, I you know I remember like I, was, I think I might have been a sophomore in high school, and that's when like All Eyes on Me dropped, and like I had it written in my planner, and I had to like run to Best Buy after school to go buy the double CD. So like I was listening to a bunch of like West Coast music from you know the Tupac stuff that was out at the time, the West Side Connection, like I love Mac Ten, you know the Cube stuff, you know Dub C, mm -hmm. like uh, all that stuff, man. And then like listen to the the radio because Theo was the big DJ down here. That would be the afternoon drive time on ninety two point three, and like he just had all the West Coast cats on there, and it was just like the, the the coolest thing in the world to me at the time. Man, it's like when you think about that era, I just think of so many like you're talking like golden rap and hip hop man and that's right? specifically west coast right because like at the same time like jay-z dropped reasonable doubt and then right. like uh biggie had you know life after death right like after he got shot so it was just like it was just so much good stuff that was going on my goodness man like i, I couldn't imagine you're just walking around with this cassette a bunch of cds and just no a cd i have my cd <laughs> case man like and like everyone was like specific to where I, I i knew where it was in my book right like someone was like i want to hear that so i was just like flip through like here you go like put that on like song or track five whatever the case may be like that was my, my joint. goodness what a time, what a time. Um, so in thinking about that, you know, there was, um, you had mentioned before that uh, you were talking about how there's always like this cycle breaker, right, in the family. Um, and, and I think you were speaking about yourself in this instance as you're, you know, you're thinking about kind of like wanting to get out of that space. You, you're feeling a bit different from, you know, your surroundings. Um, what do you mean by a cycle breaker and, and, and how are you going to break that cycle? I, I mean, I how how I did it, I did it unconsciously, but I also just knew that, you know, wherever I was at, like, 
nothing ever felt right to me. So like whatever the environment was, like I wasn't necessarily comfortable in. So like that's sort of what drove me and pushed me to do more things. Um, hmm. You know, my family, like in addition to being the first mixed race kid, like I'm the first kid to go to college, period. So like there wasn't wow. necessarily anybody that I could like, you know, an older cousin or whatever the case may be like, oh, shit, there's X, Y and Z going to, you know, a, a different city right. state to go to school like no nah, like i just figured that out on my own like i had an advisor in high school but i don't even remember that being impactful to me it was just <laughs> like yeah like that's i i had to you know figure that part out on my own but that's what sort of broke the cycle in my family because like everyone was you know you you graduate high school and you go get a job and you work and that's what you do and you just work yeah and it's work, just a job <laughs> and that's your life you know what i mean right <laughs> but that was never that never sat well with me and like I don't think that I like consciously knew that when I was a kid I just always knew that like I just needed to drive forward and drive forward and drive forward and like I got encouraged by my parents obviously like mm -hmm. they're, they're super proud of me because of everything that I've done but like yeah and just they were just like do what you want to do man like you're smart like keeping that like you're good at that stuff like go for it so that's that's you know what it was for me do you remember what they they were doing for most of your 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 teenage years for work uh, yeah, my dad worked for the gas company. Like he mm -hmm. started out like literally like reading meters, like one of those people that would go around and read the meters, which would like impact your bill or whatever the case may be. And then like he worked his way into um, the office and the building was in downtown L.A. And then my mom, when we moved up to Palmdale and Lancaster, she started working for the Lancaster School District and worked in the um, the cafeteria. So she was managing like the cafeterias for like all the for one school specifically, but for all the students that were there and like, you know, cooking their food and that kind of thing. Right, right. And so they, you know, they had everyday jobs. And I, yeah. I guess for you, they were just like, hey, whatever you want to do, we'll support it. But they weren't like specifically telling you a certain direction that you needed to go. Yeah, no. And it, they were super supportive in that regard. You know what I mean? It wasn't like if I ever said I wanted to do something, they'd be like, no, you can't do that. It's like, no, like, go try that. Go figure that out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I went and figured everything out that I had to. Like, you know, they were the proudest people in the world when I went to USC. Like, I was the first person mm -hmm. to do that in my family, like I said. So like, them being able to see that, like my dad still tells me how proud he is of me about that. You know what I mean? Like it's cool. <laughs> is it? Uh, is that like the the school? Like if you're gonna, if, for you, if you were you're know, like thinking back on it when you're thinking about college, that was the only choice for you was USC. No, actually not. Like I, I applied <laughs> to you know I see this is the thing where like I wish that I actually would have had some sort of guidance, right? Because I just applied to schools in in California, uh -huh. and you know I went to you know went to go look at like some schools in San Diego, and then like did like looked at Cal State Northridge, and then like you know UCLA, UCLA and USC. Um, yeah, but I didn't apply to like Texas or Oklahoma or Miami or anything like that. But I or just, LSU, you know. Yeah, right. I mean, listen, I would have gone to LSU. Football programs fun, man. Like that's listen. Like my advice to people when they go when they pick a college is like, you know, you're gonna get what you get out of it. Go somewhere where you have a good sports program. Yeah, I mean, which is terrible <laughs> advice, but it's it makes but it fun. It's a part. I mean, the social part of college is a part of the experience. It's, I mean, it's I, important. I, listen, I, I love that's, football. That's games. everything, man. The socialization in college is what you're actually there for. Like, unless you're going like for a doctorate or something like that, right? Where you have to right. be like a fully, you know, learned person. You know what I mean? <laughs> totally. Tell me. So your experience in college was it was a bit complicated, right? So it's, to say it's, the least, it's, it's 1999, and you're at USC, um, and you know you spend quite a bit of time there um what were those years like for you like you know what made it so complicated i mean i was just in shock because you know every the school up to that point was easy for me um yeah like high school was a breeze like i really didn't have to do much as far as studying or extending myself to like actually like learn the curriculum so
when you go to college, it's it's all on you. And then, you know, I'm in these classes and like thought that I could continue with the same habits that I had where I would just like do everything last minute, um, retain the information and then spit it out and do well on the test. But it really didn't work out for me. After my first semester, I was on academic probation, you know, wow. worked out, worked off of that the, se the second semester and then got back on my third semester. Like I was I was in and out of trouble academically, like my whole entire college career. And then I got booted from the university for you know, bad grades. And then I had to go to like community college to get them back and work my way back. Um, went back to USC, did poorly <laughs> again, and then like yeah. got kicked out again. So then I went to Cal State Bakersfield to like take classes to get, you know, show them that I like knew what I was doing, mm -hmm. worked my way back to USC and then still was like lazy and still didn't do what I needed to do, like on my side of the street. Right. So then right. You know, I want finally it was just like, yeah, you know, you've gone back and forth up and down too many times like this. It's it's over for you here. So I eventually wound up getting kicked out of school. Wow. So what were you like? What were you doing? Like if you, you know, you, you know, what are you doing? What else are you doing other, outside of school? Not going to class. Like I joined the fraternity my, what, second semester, sophomore year. That was a part of my downfall. Like you start drinking and taking drugs and doing all that stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just wasn't able to manage it, man. Like I didn't know how to yeah, do both. And then like I was, yeah. you know, yeah, I just wasn't able to manage it, man. Like I didn't have any discipline as far as like keep the party over here and do school. And then like I have an addictive personality on top of it. So I was like, okay, I'm just doing all this partying. I mean, that was the thing that, you know, was the most enjoyable at the time. I don't even know, know if it was enjoyable good for, for you. I was just like, <laughs> you see enjoyables and I don't even think it was enjoyable. All I was hmm. doing was like suppressing everything that I was like, uh, you know, the, all the emotions and stuff that I had grown up feeling. So just bottling everything up yeah, and just man. like numbing yourself out, right? Yeah, it was it wasn't it wasn't a good time for me as I look back on it now. You know, like all the mm -hmm. stuff that I was doing just like I did to, you know, suppress, suppress, suppress. Yeah. And was it when you got kicked out of out of USC, was that the low for you? No, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Um it was a low, but it wasn't the low. You know what I mean? Like I I mm -hmm. you know, I got a DUI, that was another low, and then like yeah, man, I just had I had a few of them, but, you know, the yeah. DUI was like a godsend to an extent for me, because like, you know, when you get those, you're court ordered to go to, you know, AA meetings. And like I sat in those rooms and initially I was closed minded, not thinking that I had any issues with anything. But then you hear the story and it's like, oh, wow, like mm. that's my story, too. Like mm -hmm. this guy doesn't know me. This dude doesn't have going on what I got going on, but we got the same thing. So that's where I sort of first realized like certain things. And then. I, I didn't get sober then. Oh, I'm just throwing this out there now, but I didn't get sober then. But so like my, you know, my drinking and my partying like continued and then everything mm -hmm. just got progressively worse and worse. And yeah, I just went through one one phase where I was drinking like heavily and, you know, wasn't good to the person I was with at the time. And then like, yeah. you know, that person said to me, like, if you don't stop drinking now, like you're going to lose me. So that's actually what wow. fueled me to stop drinking. Wow. That's, I mean, that's crazy. You, you must've, you must've loved that person. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And also like, you know, I, I, I've been sent angels in this life for real, where people have like been able to tell me things because of my stubbornness that I don't necessarily see, you know, in mm -hmm. real time. And then like, I value, you know, certain people that are in my life. So people point things out to me and like, I take it seriously. And you know, yeah. those are the angels that I'm talking about where people have like pointed stuff out to me and been like, yo, like you, you could be doing better here. Right, right. I mean, we you absolutely need those people in your life, right? Because otherwise, we you know we continue to make the same mistakes. We wouldn't be where we are today. Yeah, one would um, hope that you have enough awareness to not make those same mistakes twice. But you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it'd be great if we can learn 
from the first time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, take me back to, to college, though, because college wasn't all bad. And the no. reason I say that is because um, I believe that's when you had a, a, a classmate that mm-hmm. had introduced you to an opportunity at Interscope. Yeah, so when I first went to USC, I went in as a broadcast journalism major because after I got off the radio thing, I thought that I wanted to do like sports broadcasting and things like that, right? So I went into Annenberg, which is the School for Communication, and um, you have to take a bunch of news writing classes and okay. or just like just news stuff in general, right? One of the classes I had to take was news writing to fulfill my thing, but um, I sat in there, and then at the beginning of the semester. Um, you know, you go around the class and everyone asks you what you want to do. And like at that point, I was just like, I, I just want to work in music. So I said I wanted to work in the music industry. Like and I had no clue what I wanted to do at that point. But <laughs> um, yeah, so I said that. And then we go through the semester. At the end of the semester, this girl that's been in the class all uh, all year comes up to me. She's like, hey, like you want to work in the music industry, right? And I was like, yeah, I do. And she goes, well, I um, I'm finishing an internship at Interscope Records. And they need people for the summer. So if you want to do that, like, let me get your resume and, and I'll give it to the to the people. And I was like, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what are the chances? <laughs> I mean, listen, like that's like I've had there's certain moments in life that I look back on. And I'm just like, I can't believe that that actually worked out the way it did. But that that's definitely one of them where I just happen to say something off the cuff. And then like, you know, six months later, like someone's like, hey, do you want to do this? And I'm like, absolutely. And then that turned into my career. When we come back. Ray steps backwards while trying to leap forward. For this week's 99 Days of Design feature, let's hear from Franklin Watley, owner of Classic Men Barbershop. As he prepares for what's next, Franklin shares his experience working with 99 Designs to reimagine his brand identity. started cutting in high school and one of my uncles cut uh, NBA player Terrell Brandon's hair and one day my uncle wasn't available and he was scrambling around looking for a haircut I think he had a photo shoot or something so then he called me and I cut his hair and then the more we started building a relationship I started cutting his hair every time he came to town even after he got traded from Cleveland so one day, and I, I remember like it was yesterday, my phone rang and, I, and it said Portland, Oregon on it. And I'm like, who is this? Because usually, you know, he called me from a Cleveland number, but he called me from his Portland number and he said, hey, what's up? And I'm like, who is this? And he's like, it's TV. I'm like, oh, what's up, man? I don't know this number. He said, yeah, what you doing? I said, I'm chilling. He said, well, um, I'm about to send a, a flight out to you to Portland. I want you to come check out the barbershop. I want you to come work here. You know, I thought about it for a while, talked to a couple family members and friends, and I decided to, to move, uproot myself in Portland. You know, in the barber profession, there is no promotion. You have to promote yourself. So that's what I did. I gave myself a promotion. After 10 years in the barbering business, it was time for a promotion, you know? So that's how I got to Classic Men. When you're in barber school, they make you do a thing for your barbershop. You have to make your own barbershop, make your own flyers, make your own business cards. And the name I had back then was Classic Men. So I forgot all about that until that dumb song came on from Jadena. I'm a classic, which I hate the song so much. But it reminded me, oh, that was the name I had. So then... Instead of classic man, I did classic men. 
and that's how that name came along. I did not know how much I loved and needed barbering until we were shut down. I was lost. I was completely lost. Like, I did not know what to do with myself. I was trying different things, trying to read, trying to do all these different things, but nothing satisfied me. You know, there was there was nothing that made me feel whole. And I was, uh, I went through a little spell of like lost, like, and finally when they said we could open back up, you know, I was excited, but oh my God, we got to do all of these things for, so all these, what was it, PPE, PPE or whatever, all these things that we, gloves and masks and you can't find Lysol. You can't find toilet paper. You remember when you couldn't find toilet paper? <laughs> you can find toilet paper now, but back then you couldn't even find toilet paper. You couldn't find paper towels. You couldn't find Lysol wipes. You couldn't find nothing, but they wanted us to have all these things before we opened up. And uh, man, it was, it, was, it was a tough road to hold. Had a couple barbers quit. A couple barbers leave the industry because unemployment was better than working. Why would you work and get unemployment? So... I, I I I went through all those struggles, but it seems that I'm coming out on the other side right now, and man, I'm happy to be here. Looking to refresh his brand identity, Franklin shares his thoughts on working with 99 Designs by Vistaprint. As soon as I seen it, I said, that's the one. It was only two things. There's a car in the logo, and I like classic cars. So she put a classic car that was like, uh, like old, like a 32, like Henry Ford, you know, type of car. And I was like, no, I put a 6.4 in there. So, so she put a 6.4 in there and then the hat was like an old, like Peaky Blinders hat. And I was like, nah, put a pro model in there because what my classic men is, is a, is a, is a new take on an old idea. So I wanted the mixture of retro, and old school to kind of c- combine. So as we did that, it, um, and the colors were just right, it was just, it was just the one. You just knew it was the one. July 1st, I'm opening a new shop, and you know I had a budget for it. Now my budget has increased, so I'm I'm making it as pristine as possible. The things that I'm doing to this shop is just like above what I, you know, what I thought I could do or what I was financially uh, able to do. So um, I'm really excited about it going forward. It's full throttle now. I've, I've sat back long enough, you know, and I've had conversations with myself long enough. Like the future is like so right for me right now. Like I'm just ready to just attack, you know what I mean? Like I'm tired of sitting back waiting or hoping you know, I'm ready to attack. Like, I'm ready to get out there and really, like, pose that, you know, when you come to Portland, this is where you should come. That was Franklin Watley, owner of Classic Men Barbershop. Learn more about 99 Days of Design, a 99 Designs by Vistaprint initiative at 99designs.com slash 99 Days of Design. Hey. It's Bima. Welcome back to Claimant Stories. It's the year 2000, and Ray is interning at the legendary Interscope Records. It was 2000. Um, it was 2000. <laughs> yeah, so I was like 19 years old or something crazy like that. And I just remember, I remember like walking in there and parking down the street, 
like super far away and walking up and like looking stupid in like a dumb button down shirt, whatever. And then like getting in the office and I'm like, oh my God, like there's all these magazine covers with all these people that I listen to. It's like Trey and Beck and you too. And just like hanging on the walls. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, I love this. Like, yeah. So yeah, man, I was just like blown away and in shock. And like, I don't even know how the interview went. Like, I can't even imagine that I did well, but for some reason they allowed me to keep coming back. So I'm, I'm grateful for that for sure. My goodness. So you 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 have this internship um, in the background, you know, the school thing's happening. It doesn't work out um, and you get kicked out. And so uh, at some point that internship had ended. And so all of those things are gone at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. What are you what are you up to? Like, where are you working? Like, are you back home? Like, what's happening? I was back in Palmdale working at Office Depot. Whew. See, so that's so this what happens is like in your worst That's nightmare. what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, this is exactly what you were talking about. You're like, this was the the situation you did not want to happen. Yeah, and it was like this, the Office Depot was like brand new out there. One didn't exist before that. So like I helped with opening the store, like, you know, and like that's what it was for me at the time. But I always still had my connection to the people back at Interscope. And if they ever needed a mm. temp, like I would go down every once in a while and do that or just literally just go down and hang out with them. Cause I, when I was there, like I, I got cool with people, you know what I mean? And like right, we, had, right. we had similar interests and like, I was able to talk about music with people, man. It was so much fun. You know what I mean? So I, I still had that thing, that connection back to Interscope, luckily like that, that never, never went away. So yeah, yeah I mean, I was just, I was working at Office Depot, dude, selling printers and computers and things like that and trying to get people to buy a <laughs> warranty plan to make my check better. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and, but eventually, at, at, at some point, you were actually able to get on as a temp at, at Interscope, right? Yeah, exactly. That. So one of one of one of the guys that I was friends with that had uh, a temp assistant job, like he was moving to another department, and he just like called me out of the blue one day, and he's like, "Hey, like I'm moving departments. Like, do you want to come and work this desk?" And I'm like, "Yeah, man. Like, absolutely. Like, what do you need from me?" And he's like, "Come in tomorrow." I was like, "Bet. I'm down there." Like. <laughs> left my house two and a half hours before I was supposed to be down there because that's how long the commute took me wow. and like was in the office and like from that point forward I was working you know in the publicity department at Interscope Records wow literally from that moment on like that was it for you no you know no turning around no looking back you were like I this I've already got the taste of what I did not want I'm working mm-hmm. at Office Depot and now I got another shot at this. Yeah. And that's it was exactly what I wanted. You know what I mean? Like I whatever they needed me to do, I would be the best version of it. They needed to go needed me to go make copies all day long. That's what I was doing. You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> just yeah, like I wasn't going to let that go away. Right, right. So take me into as someone that, you know, has never worked in, in that industry. Um, what if I'm coming in, I'm a temp, what should I expect? You know, should I be expected? I'm, I'm about to be in the meetings and I'm, I'm, I'm pitching stories. Like what, what's about to happen? Uh, are, are you asking me today? Or are you asking me back then? <laughs> I'm asking you back then. <laughs> okay. Back then, back then it was, you know, I, I started, it's like, yo, like here's, here's a bunch of magazine clips. And at that point there was a service that would like find all the mentions of all the artists and you would have to like make copies of those and create these huge clip packs. Right. And then like those would be stored and that's what it was. And that's what I had to do. And then like that evolved into answering the phones. And then that evolved to like working um, tour press, you know, when the mm. artists would go on tour, like you would hit up the local markets and like the local papers and see if they want to go out and review the show and then like interview the artist for a preview or whatever the case may be to talk about the upcoming tour date. Like that's, that's how it went. But yeah, you still, you know, it's, I, you, you have to, you know, how assistant life is you do whatever you got to do and you do it to the best of your right. ability, man. If they, they tell you to go to Starbucks and give me a green iced tea, like, 
You're going to Starbucks and get going to Starbucks. <laughs> Tell me about because uh, you mentioned this um, this press tour. You and I had, had talked about this the the press tour publicity, mm-hmm. um, and you were working with Greg Miller at the yep. time, right? You were Greg's assistant, and at the time he was looking after the careers of uh, Rich Boy, Soldier Boy, yeah, and uh, the Game, and a couple other folks as well. Um, so for press tour like what's that what goes into that what exactly are you doing is that like local like how are you how are it's, you going about it's that? all it's all local markets right so like when you know nowadays when the tour gets announced on instagram there's like the, the ad mat that you have so like we would have that we'd get a press release written with all the tour dates and then you would put it out on the national wire and then you know you would look at the dates specifically and then we had a database of all these uh i actually think we had a book at that point and i could like flip through and be like okay like in Denver, here's the ABC affiliate, <laughs> like, you know, and then you just hit yeah. up the newsrooms and stuff like that. Or you had like, you know, whatever the local paper is, it's the dailies and the weeklies that are all in the city. So you would just literally cold call them or send an email and hope that they wanted to do that. Or you would talk them into doing it. You know what I mean? Like these, yeah, some right. of these cities, like, you know, people are chomping at the bit because there's not much action. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's on like, you know, rich boys coming to town. He's got this song called throw some D's. That's really killing it right now. Like you want to go check out the show. People are like, Oh yeah. Like, thank you. (laughs) My goodness. And were you, um, at this point, right. You're still kind of green in the space. How comfortable Mm -hmm. are you on these, on these calls? Not at all. Mm -hmm. I hated talking on the phone. Like I just like, I would pick it up and it would ring and I'd just be so nervous. Like I was just like, and then stumble all over myself. Like it just, it took a while for me to get used to that aspect of it. Like I just wasn't, you know, you don't know. And like, I was a kid too. So I was trying to like, yeah. you know, fake the funk a little bit to sound right, like I right, knew yeah. what I was talking about to like make people, you know, care about this stuff. Even though like the sell is actually the easy part. It's like getting over my fears of picking up the phone was hmm. the difficult part. Because like, dude, I was working at Interscope Records. It was the biggest label in the game, right? Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> These people don't know that I'm an assistant. Like, and I thought that everyone knew that I was so green, but all I had to say this is Ray Alba from Interscope Records publicity. Like I have X, Y, and Z coming to, this, to your city. You wanna talk to them? And they'd be like, uh, yeah, for sure. Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I made it more difficult than it needed to be, but that's, you know, that's an experience and that's maturity experience, on top right? of it. Yeah, that's how the stuff long... you gotta do to cut your teeth. How long before you you got comfortable and realized that actually no one knows, you know, that that you're you're an assistant versus, you know, you know I mean, a tenured <laughs> publicist. And man, I, you know, in all honesty, I, it took me a really long time. Like I, I was driven by fear for a lot of mm-hmm. that time period in my life. Right. So I was always nervous of doing the wrong thing. And um, you know, thinking I was gonna get fired for whatever the case may be, you know, and mm-hmm. trying to get there early to sitting in traffic for two and a half hours, which is stressful. And then sitting, you know, getting in there and like having like a million things to do when I first show up. But I, I really didn't get comfortable for a long time. Like, yeah, I don't even know, man. It took me a really, really, really long time because after I, you know, I worked for Greg, I moved over to work for the head of the department. And mm. that was another ball game because it's more stress. Like you have the, you know, all the executives calling in and like all the big time managers calling in. And like that, that drove me insane for the longest too. And like, you know, uh, like I had, right, right. Yeah. You're thinking about all these people, these big names and all this influence. And yeah. you're like, oh my goodness, I messed this up and I'm done. <laughs> you, you have this list where it's like, you know, find me if any of these people are on the list. So like I'm carrying the name, double checking the list. I got to figure out where this guy is. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, everything was stressful. Like I wasn't comfortable. <laughs> like I'm probably still not overly comfortable but at least now I like act like I am, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Was there any moments like as you were, you're coming up in that and, and working under these, these bigger names um, that you felt like you did something that was just unforgivable? Unforgivable. 
or like you I mean, were, listen, if something was unforgivable, I wouldn't have been employed, man. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I ever if I ever did anything that bad, but like, you know, it's nerve wracking, dude. Like Paul Rosenberg would call it like Eminem's manager and like, you know, it's scariest thing on the face of the earth or, you know, whoever managed you too. Like, it was just frightening. Like, you know, and then I would just stumble sometimes and like have to calm myself down or whatever and then just figure it out. Like, I, I mean, listen, I made a ton of mistakes when I was an assistant, like mm-hmm. a ton of mistakes, but that's part of it, you know? And then you make a mistake and then you figure it out and you don't do it twice. Right. Right. That's what you have to learn. That's what you learn on the job. Yeah. That's the training. Right. Um, Tell me about, uh, you know, as you're in this industry and you, you'd work in the industry for years and you start to establish yourself and, and build relationships, um, you've been quoted saying that um, this is a relationship business. Uh, for a young person coming up, what do you mean by that? Uh, I mean, that's that's just what, that's the name of the game, man. Like, you you know, you, you got to create a rapport with people, whatever, however that's done these days. I know it's been difficult with the current state of the world, but as we get out of that, like, you know, you got to get in there and find out what makes people tick and find out what people like and then, you know, cater to that to an extent. And, you know, go to dinners with people, go to lunch with people, you know, get coffee and just like build this real rapport where these people like learn that they can trust your opinion and mm. what and, you know, help them out when they need help with something. And, you know, hopefully the favor gets returned. But it's literally just going out there and, and, and you know, building a solid, solid rapport with whatever field you're in. You know what I mean? With me, it's right. It's writers and editors and TV bookers and things like that, you know, and then managers and artists, too, because you got to be getting good with them or else like, mm-hmm. you know, you're screwed. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, you definitely I mean, you you definitely got good in with with a lot of the right folks. Um, and specifically, I wanted to ask you about um, when uh, a certain artist came came into the um, into the office one day. And I think you had started to become known as the rap, the rap dude, like Ray loves rap yeah. <laughs> he's he's the person that's always knowing about what's happening with in the space and the new music that's coming out and uh, i know you'd had an opportunity to to work with yellow wolf when mm-hmm. he had signed interscope and then one day um interscope signs kendrick lamar yeah um what did you know like what did you know about kendrick at that point and why were you just like yeah i i, I, I have to work on kendrick lamar i mean i like look i i'm mean, i'm from here like not in LA specifically, but I'm from here. You know what I mean? So like I knew what was going on on the streets and then I was, you know, on the internet, like a crazy person. So that's after it was after the, you know, the EP dropped and then after like OD dropped. So like, I I knew what I knew I was Mm -hmm. a huge fan of his from, Mm -hmm. from the jump. Right. And then like when I caught wind that he was, you know, getting signed, I went to the head of the department who I worked for, Dennis Dennehy at the time, right? And I was like, yo, like, I want to I want to work on this. And he's like, cool. And then, like, it, it was just because it was so, like, new at the time that no one really knew, you know, what it was or what it was going to be. Right. So, you had insight they didn't know. Like, you had been familiar with the artist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the for <kid>. sure. <laughs> and look, man, like, the, the, the thing that I love about this and what I still love about this is that, like, I'm a fan of the, the music first, right? So, like, mm-hmm. I knew what was going on. And, like, I wanted to work with somebody that I was a fan of because, like... Mm-hmm. That's the little kid in me that enjoys doing this part of the business, you know, like being a fan of these guys is 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 important because then I'm able to like, you know, dive in and digest it and then sell it the right way to people who, who right. you know, have no idea that this guy's been rapping for 10 years at this point. He's been grinding it out in L.A. and doing every show under the sun and like, yeah, putting out this incredible work that just didn't get the attention at the time. But now, like, it's starting to build, you know, mm-hmm. when you and so when you have an artist like that and, and a younger artist that isn't. Uh, as well known yet, um, 
what is your job, right, in, in that scenario? When you get a, a Kendrick Lamar at that stage, you know, what is what is your job, you know, from the label side um, to help that artist? Uh, Kendrick was going to work regardless, man. That's why I was involved <laughs> or not. So, like, let's be real about that. But, um, you know, it's just, like, I remember, because it was around the time when he signed is when Section 80 drops. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, we had, you know, we would have these... CDs just made where it was just like literally like the, the front cover art, the back in a jewel case, like a real thin jewel case and like a burn CD in there essentially. So at that time, like, look, like I had my contacts of people that I dealt with. So like, I just like mailed the CDs out. Like that's what I was doing. And then like, you know, you'd mail it out, wait a little bit and then pick up the phone and talk to people and figure out what they think mm. and if they like it or not. And, and listen, like section 80 dropped and took over the world. Like he was getting all the critical press in the world, like all the smart highbrow highbrow press, like was a fan of his, as they should mm-hmm. be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like, it was just yeah, it was easy at that point because he was he's dude that dude's a once in a generation talent. Like he's he's remarkable and like his ability just to like weave tales and like his observational skills, it's just second to none. Right, right. I think one of the other moments that was uh, I think pretty pivotal is from the regional side was the LA Weekly cover, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, like, I got the LA that... Weekly cover. I mean, listen, like I, yeah, you just, I just knew that LA Weekly was a thing. I knew that I loved LA Weekly when I was growing up at USC. Like you'd pick it up and look at the back and figure out what was hmm. going on. You know what I mean? Like so, it was just like a cool thing that you like you would see in the streets. But LA Weekly was definitely like a good one. And then like I think we got LA Times at that time too. So it was just like highlighting all the local stuff. And then like at that point, like his camp got the XXL freshman cover. So like that was wow. already going on. Like yeah, I think Punch got that one. Um, for him but it, everything was literally just coalescing at the right time so it was just mm-hmm. you know figuring out how i could help right right place right time great talent yeah. <laughs> it starts to piece itself together and then start to build momentum and you just build on top of that um one of the 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 moments that i actually watched it today because i was uh looking over some some notes and it was the the 2013 appearance on mm-hmm. snl mm-hmm. and uh you were you were there the entire time right you were there uh, even you know, in rehearsals before everything was going down. Right. Um, what What do you remember about that that moment? Was that the first TV appearance? No, it wasn't the first TV appearance. But that was the, like at the up, up until that point, like the most significant, right? Like my my boss mm-hmm. Dennis was the guy that like had the still does the incredible relationship with SNL. So like you know he was working that from the jump and like you know trying to get Kendrick on there. So like as we got like you know the pitchfork album of the year and all this stuff like that's we would just feed it over to them and make sure we sent it and like he was doing his thing and then when the booking came through like yeah i was just dealing with all the logistics there and was there during rehearsals and it was i mean overwhelming i think is is maybe one of the words to use but it's just it was just so much because i was such like in awe of this whole thing like just standing back in that tiny studio it's freezing and standing next to my homie archie davis who was doing the marketing at the time and like watching you know kendrick just perform swimming pools in rehearsals like i was like overcome with emotion at that point man like i was just like i looked at arch and i was like can you believe that we're here man like this is crazy like I would have never thought this. Like, that was one of yeah. those moments that I look back on fondly, even up to this point. I love watching that performance still because it's like, yeah, it's it's, it's incredible. That's incredible. I, I just think as someone, you know, as we even think about, you know, what we've been chatting about over the, this last, you know, hour, I guess, um, how much you love music and how it's taken you to this point in your career where you're, you know, this is an artist that you you genuinely enjoy and, mm-hmm. you, you know, you've been a part of this great team to help get to this stage and now you're there witnessing it. Um, that's 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 incredible. Um, thinking, thinking about that and thinking about um, kind of the business and the relationship side, mm-hmm. um, how like, you know, 
in, in, in certain industries, people always say it's a small industry and you never know who you'll see again. Um, and knowing that you're a person that, that is very intent about relationships, um, how does that happen in, in your world? How does that show up um, in publicity in the music industry? I mean, it's just, it, 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 it is what it is. It is super, it's a super tiny industry, right? So it's like, you just, you know, you don't burn people and do the best job you can, man. Like that's all that I've ever, you know, tried to do was do the best job that I can. And that, you know, it's funny cause you would think that that would be everything. But like, I, I thought that that <laughs> would like speak for me more than like whatever sort of self-promoting I needed to do or whatever the case may be. But like, I just, I just always wanted to, to do a good job and do right by everybody that like gave me an opportunity and um, yeah, and not, you know, drop the ball or fumble the ball away, man. Yeah. And you were at uh, you were at Interscope for about twenty years, right? Yeah, like, I was there for a super how, long time. <laughs> how what was it about the place that you know allowed you to continue to grow, right? Because if you're there for that amount of time, it's usually because you know you're you're you know you're you're being energized. Like there's something that's that's allowing you to continue to grow and to um, continue to spread your wings. What was it about Interscope? I mean, this it's the best. It was the best label. It's, it's been the best label for a long time. So like I just. You know, at, when I was there, dude, it was, it was Kendrick Lamar. Like, that's, you know, I said this earlier, but, like, I'm still a fan. You know what I mean? And, like, I never I never lost that. Even to this day, I haven't lost that, man. Like, I still, like, love listening to music and driving around the city, like, with it blasting and my windows down and, like, wrapping my ass off while I'm driving, <laughs> you know? and that But that's what fueled me to, like, continue, you know? And, like, as his star rose, like, my career got dragged along with that. So, like, you know, I... I saw the opportunity and I had great mentors there, man. Like the, the head of the department, Dennis was just like, I just, I learned and continue to learn so much from him and like him believing in me to put me in these positions and, you know, elevating me when I deserved it or after I deserved it, whatever the case may be. But like, I just continued to like move up over there as, as, you know, like as he blew up and, you know, that worked out well for me. I worked, you know, dude, I worked Kendrick and Q and then worked with Ray Schremmerd and then, Know, a bunch of other things and then like the last thing I worked over there was the baby when he first signed and that was like mm-hmm. you know equally as fun as working like early dot too because you know he was baby's like the biggest hardest working artist mm-hmm. I've ever been around like he's crazy my goodness tell me about you had mentioned about the, the mentorship part right and I think when you think about careers um it, it the the route it's always hard like I, I don't want to like I don't want anyone to think like the career thing and the trajectory is like this easy thing. You wake up and you're successful. I it wish. Takes work. <laughs> it takes work. Uh, but one thing that can actually help that is this mentor, this mentorship um, thing that that could show up for you with Dennis. Like, how how was that? How did that relationship form? Right? Like, did you just go be like Dennis, be my mentor? Like, <laughs> no, I, I how never. Did, how did never that really, happen? Yeah, no, I never really like. I never outright or asked anybody to be my mentor because I didn't even know what that was really to be perfectly honest with you like I you know I think that that goes back to me being a kid and not like having anybody to sort of like look up to or to like be like yo like you're doing this like how do I get to where you're going like I just like (laughs) threw myself into the fire and figured it out like I got mentorship sort of through osmosis and and learning mm-hmm. learning that way and, and being able to be around someone that moves so well in this industry like you learn you pick things up you're on the phone calls you're listening to how he's talking to people and how he's dealing with stuff and like you know greg same way too like you know figuring out how he worked and like picking up some of their traits and their characteristics as to how they work and then like emulating that to an extent because like you know you, you don't want to emulate failure you know what i mean you want to emulate <laughs> yeah. people that are doing well and then like 
you know, when I got into the job, I was like, okay, cool. Like I want that desk and then I want that job. And then like, I want to learn from him over here because he's got the head of the department and it's mm-hmm. like a big executive at the company. So it's just like observing and, yeah. you know, I, I never outright asked anybody like that question or whatever the case may be. Like if right. you, if you had asked me growing up or even at the time, like, do you have a mentor? I would have told you, no, like <laughs> not at all. You know, I mm-hmm. have people that I work for that I admire and then I'm paying attention, but I don't have like a mentor per se that I'm picking up the phone and calling and being like, Hey, like I need your advice on this. You know, like I have that now with certain people cause right. it's just how it's my different. relationship has evolved with people. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. You know, and I, I can relate to what you're saying about, um, I, I call it proximity and mm-hmm. I like to, if, you know, if you, you could see something, um, in a positive sense of where you want to go and it's a person or a thing or whatever, if you're around it, you kind of get caught up in that orbit a little bit. Right. And there's, positive things that can happen if you're in orbit that's not positive negative things that can happen yeah for sure it's just it's just it's a that part thing they say right where you look at your closest friends and they'll, they'll tell you about yourself oh absolutely right yeah. <laughs> the people you surround yourself with is likely what you're going to be like what your life's going to be like right um and so the the mentorship piece for me is it's key but it's also just like sometimes it's just observation like you could you could have a mentor from afar that doesn't even know <laughs> they're your mentor <laughs> yeah for sure and like I'm, I'm like look as as loud and and like unafraid to speak as i am at times i'm also like super afraid to speak and like just just incredibly observant where i just like want to sit and watch and see how people move and then like figure out like what i do and don't like about how they move that's mm. how I go about doing things. Mm. Ray, when you think about your your career thus far, we're we're twenty plus in, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you still got a lot of years in front of you. Uh, but when willing. you think about <laughs> young creatives that they're interested in the music industry, the modern, the, you know, the modern music industry today, and um, they want to to get into that industry, what advice would you have for them today, knowing what you've seen and where you see things going? You know, it's interesting because there's, you know, I, I, I look to see who's coming up, right? Because those are the people that are inspiring the next people. Like, you, you know, people are established and like they're, they're great for that sort of inspiration. But it's like you want to look at the younger people to see what they're doing and what they're into because that's like the next wave of culture. They're starting it all, right? Hmm. It, I, I pay more attention to that than like other stuff. Like, it's interesting. Like, this kid on LinkedIn just... DM'd me out of nowhere on LinkedIn and he's like a young video director that goes to USC and is like shooting all these videos but he's like super dope and I've like you know I've been talking to him like I listen I what I would say is that everything is is so in front of you right now with the way the world is and like how small the world is to an extent because of the internet right like people can you can look up who does what in the field that you want to do and then everyone's accessible whether it's like an Instagram DM or a, a direct tweet or whatever the case may be you know what I mean like you can get at people but you just have to research and like have an idea of what you want and people are willing to help you you know if you ask and like are are, are down to do like the not fun stuff like people are willing to give people an opportunity that was Ray Alba an SVP of publicity in the music industry find out more about Ray and get access to all of our episodes at Apple Podcasts if you'd like to connect with us follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Claim Us Stories our show this week is produced by BJ Fergozo. Original music, production, and scoring by Adrian Anaya. Original music by Danny Castillo, Kinsley Barry Quattro, Orlando Kennedy, Melanie Jag, and vocals provided by Rosella. And special thanks also to VDOT, Professor H, Jordan Dinwiddie, Nick Pop, Lily Lynn, Nicole Early, Becky Mathai, and Amin L. Falele. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to Claim Us Stories. <laughs>